Hey everybody, welcome back to the Listener's Question, episode 10. Today's guest on the Listener's Question episode is Mark Smith. Mark is a senior clinical psychologist and the current president of the PSI, or Psychological Society of Ireland. I've known Mark for a few years now and we share a number of passions, most notably Liverpool Football Club, Leinster Rugby and Children's Mental Health. And although we don't always agree on some things, I've always found Mark's views to be well-informed, clear and grounded in best practice. I've deliberately asked a number of professionals to join me on the remaining listeners' questions episodes so that listeners have a menu of possible responses to the issues that were raised and rather than just hearing my voice all the time. So Mark is also a father of three small children uh, and I know from his Twitter feeds that he's also involved in children's sport and nurturing the talent of Ireland's future camogie stars. Uh, I've no doubt that you'll enjoy listening to Mark today as I always come away from our conversations with plenty of food for thought, and it gives me a great pleasure to welcome to the Asking for a Parent podcast today, Mark Smith. Mark, how are you? Hey, Coleman. I'm, I'm, I think like, like the rest of the world, surviving day by day and looking forward to 2020 being gone. <laughs> How's it been for you? How are you managing? It's tiring, to be honest. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a lot on the go. There is you know, managing life and work and family and sport and with the GA, the coaching with the kids. Um, yeah, it, it's not what any of us envisage, but I suppose we have to try and wake up each day trying to figure out can we do the best we can that day and, again, keep hoping for somewhat a return to normality next year, hopefully. And who's at home for you, Mark? You have three, am I right? Yeah, I have a nine, seven and three-year-old, so it's a busy house. And are they all girls? No, I have a nine-year-old girl, seven-year-old boy and three-year-old little girl. So nice, nice mixture. Nice one. So that's the, their kind of primary school. They're all busy with activities they still got to do their bits of sport over lockdown too still. yeah it was great we we mm. did um the club has been fantastic even during the, the first lockdown with my nine-year-old we we did all the training over zoom so we had kind of the garden set out we had the whatsapp with the coaches kind of arranging what we were going to do and the kids in front of the screen and you know it kept them going but it was nowhere near as good as them getting to actually see each other and play and that first day when we got back when we were allowed back they literally sprinted onto the field, which is excitement. And it was just being around people and back to this is my routine and it's so nice and I get to see people and they, they love it. It really has, isn't it? Brought the value of that stuff to the fore, mm. really, when you, when you can't have it. And Mark, obviously, as someone working in child and adolescent mental health, I've spoken on the podcast numerous times about how overwhelmingly busy it is. And I think on one occasion I was quoting something that maybe had you had said that, you know, where we were normally getting a couple of phone calls a week or so, it, it had trebled, if not more, uh, in the mm. last number of weeks. Has that been your experience as well? It, it's, it's gotten busier since that tweet. I think I had five referrals today alone. I know in the, the CAM service, we processed 30 this week. So in the last kind of six, seven weeks, I've had over a year's worth of, you know, typically or over a year's worth of referrals. So it's, and it's the same with my colleagues. I have colleagues text me going, have you any space? I'm full. Could you take them? It's, I, I, I can't. So I think publicly, privately, everywhere is, is at, at stretching to almost kind of breaking point already, which is really worrying. And it's also really sad. And although I do my private work, I don't like the fact that so many people have to go private, that the public services don't have the capacity and that people are really, really, really struggling. And it worries me, I think, that how long this is going to last. So I think we'll, we'll flatten COVID in terms of the physical piece of it, but I think the mental health, and I worry that the mental health piece is going to last a lot longer, and that, that's a concern. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that mostly the stuff that I've been getting has kind of been around anxiety and worry mm. and stress. But I think there's also that thing about, like our own mental fitness has been kind of 
compromised by not being able to mix and socialize. And I think as adults and parents, there's a struggle in that too. Do you know what I mean? We need, you need your outlet as well as I do. And, you know, I, I'd be a kind of a tag rugby player on a Monday night and that hasn't been able to happen for the last six weeks. And I really miss it. Do you know what I mean? And there's a kind of a, a sense that, that everyone's struggling with it. But has it been kind of anxiety and, and people really struggling with worry and uncertainty that's coming your way? Or is it a mixture of everything? It's, it's kind of everything. It's anxiety, it's stress. But what, I, what I've noticed, and this maybe touches what you were just saying there, is that, you know, the young people are being referred, but the parents are in just as much distress. So you're kind of seeing that the young people, their support network around them, the parents who don't, you know, get out for their bit of sport, their bit of walk, or their job is lost, or they're, they're in financial difficulties. So the family unit has, is not as strong as it used to be, um, where the parents before were able to kind of put extra energy, put extra time into supporting the kids. The parents themselves are now struggling. Mm-hmm. So it's entire families that are, that are feeling the brunt of this. And I think that's, I've spoken to this earlier on today in an event, that we need to shift that focus away, I think, to, to when, we, when we meet somebody, not just to look at the young person and say, look, what do they need, but what does the family need? And to mm-hmm. recognize that, that the really key support are the parents, and that if we can empower and support and reduce the stress on them, then we're actually doing the kids a service. Absolutely. And that's a brilliant segue into the next part, <laughs> which is, uh, is, is asking the questions. I mean, we've got loads of questions in here, Mark, and, and I think we, we better crack on with that but we'll chat about them as we go uh, but I'd, I'd love to hear your views on some of these things because there's themes emerging over the, the questions that are coming up time and time again and, and maybe a, a different set of eyes might help people to kind of see things a little bit differently so uh, I'll read out the first one here the first one is I'm just wondering would you be able to help me with some advice and tell me if this is typical my daughter started first year in secondary school she's exhausted between the longer days the increase in homework and learning new subjects Uh, The teachers, one of them has given a timetable for study, which has to be done over seven days a week, which is in addition to homework. It just seems like a lot for a 13-year-old, and we've had tears in the past week. I'm just wondering if this amount of study is typical for first years. It's been so tough for them starting secondary school under COVID conditions, and I just don't know how much is too much work, and the the whole lot is, is overwhelming her. And the family have said they don't put any pressure on her in terms of grades and things, and they just really appreciate our thinking on that. This has come up a good bit, Mark, and I think it's about you know, that sixth class group really missed out on that ceremonial end to sixth class, and they missed out on confirmations and things, and, mm. and were kind of thrust into this. Any thoughts on that one? Oh, so, so many. I don't even know where to start. You know, is it normal? Is it typical? Is it helpful? No, to all of the above. When, when I look back and I look at children's stories and, and the defining moments for them, one of the most common areas that they struggle with is the transition between primary and secondary. So you're going from one classroom, one teacher, uh, where it's, it's very predictable to, you know, up to 11 different subjects, 11 teachers, you're the smallest. You're, in sixth class, you're the biggest. And you're looking down all the little ones, and then you go to first year, and you're down at the bottom of the, of the heap again. But I think, to me, it seems kind of fairly short-sighted to seven hours for a first year. Why? Like, there's, I don't see any logic to that. They, they need to adjust to it. And even if this wasn't in the COVID world, I'd still think it was kind of madness, that, that pressure of expectation. But I think it's not recognizing that the amount of energy that it's taking everybody to get through every day at the moment with COVID, it's, it's exhausting. Just getting through school, I think, and if, you're, if you've gone into first year and you're surviving getting through, that, that's an achievement. You're, you're doing well. Then throw homework on top of that and then throw, you know, seven hours a week. Like in terms of the learning, that, that's, that's risking, I think, putting kids off school 
in secondary mm. school at a very early age. I, I think it's risky and I, you know, everything's a risk benefit analysis and I see a lot of risk there and I see very little benefit. And, and again, firstly, I want to say, I think teachers are doing a great job, but I think yeah. from the point of view of the homework thing, Mark, I always have struggled with. And I think the volume of homework early on, as you say, that cost benefit analysis, what you're learning from it versus the potential it can have to turn children off school. Mm. Parents are stressed and the tiredness of it. And I really, I resent homework at the moment because the children have, my children have so much little time of daylight that mm. the thoughts of doing an extra half an hour, even if it is a half an hour, but it's pitch black here at, at four o'clock in the afternoon. So you kind of think, oh, lads, just leave it off for now. Uh, but I absolutely would echo that, echo that. I think seven hours, seven days a week for the first year is phenomenal. But are you noticing that, Mark, that there is, that, and I'm seeing a lot in the fifth year group ta- talking about a huge volume of work that they're being given. And I don't know whether it's the anticipation of maybe the, um, you know, the graded system that was done this year, that if they bring that back in next year, that every exam and test that you're doing is so important because it'll all count mm-hmm. towards. Are you seeing that? I, I, I think I'm seeing kind of more levels of homework and study stress in the fifth and sixth year group than I would have done before. Or is that just me? No, no, I, I agree because I think, you know, in fifth year, you know, there's this kind of focus immediately on the leave insert, but for the, the teenager in the old system, it's, I'd be grand, sure, look, that's, that's a year now, that's two years down the line, I'll worry about it next year, you know, I'll put the head down once I, once I get into September 6th year, and I'll, I'll start to focus then, because you've come from maybe TY, where you haven't got many demands on you, so it's kind of, in, in some ways, you're trying to go, like, from second gear in your car to fifth gear, mm. all of a sudden, and it's, it's a big jump for a lot of people, but it's, yeah, I've got people complaining about tests, and I've got this CBAs, and I've got this coming up, and this coming up, and their heads are melted. They, they're really struggling with it because, you know, teenagers can often struggle with, with looking too far ahead um, and they be in the moment. But in the moment right now, it's I've got this next demand, this next demand, this next demand. And look, that's going to be challenging at the best of time. But in a pre-COVID world, they had outlets. They could see their friends. They could go hang out. They could do the things that kind of counterbalanced a little bit and took some of the edge off. But at the moment, it's just I have to give. I have to give more. I have to give my emotional energy. I've got to give my attention to this and in a stressed environment so no definitely i think it's it's having an ongoing issue for for young people and again i'd say uh, my experience of the third level group is also one like uh, do you know the way when you're going to school or college your mates are a really important part of getting you there Mm. do you know i mean many times when you get up you think i don't really want to go in here today but i'll meet up with mark and we'll have a bit of crack and we'll have a bit of football Mm. at break time Without that, it really is a struggle to self-motivate. And you're asking 19-year-olds to kind of look at pre-recorded lectures and attend from their sitting rooms. And I was talking to one the other day, and I was about to launch into a little bit of therapy advice, and they said to me, Coleman, please don't tell me to go for a walk. I am sick <laughs> of people telling me. And I just, yeah. she hit the nail on the head because, you know, and I think as, as a, in a therapy or intervention clinician role we have so little in the bag to offer people you know there is a real you know if you if you, someone came to you mark i'm sure you'd be like myself you'd say socialize mix with people get a hobby get some passions find productive and, and a lot of that is kind of we're limited in the advice so there's mm. a there is a kind of i i feel for people in the therapy role as well because i think People are like, you know, you get this question, you know, how do we make Christmas special? And I remember saying, like, I'm a psychotherapist, not a wizard. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is that kind of view that, you know, this isn't, this is going to be a tough time. But I think a lot of the stuff that we'd normally reach into the bag for, we can't use. Do you find that as well? 
I do, but you know what I've, I've ended up using a lot more this year? It's one of the, the tricks of the trade, I suppose, that's always been there, but, but a lot more trying to be just really genuinely validating with the person and not trying to convince them, not trying to... A lot of people have found this year, young people and adults, have really struggled with this idea of, you know, you need to be resilient and you need to find the, the silver lining and pick yourself up and that sometimes it just, you know, agree with them. Well, you're right, it's absolutely not really crap. Mm-hmm. You, know, mm-hmm. you agree with me? You're not trying to change my mind? Went, no, I agree with you because it's crap for me too. And I get it. And that, that, that you know, we know within that, that kind of therapy relationship that it's that sense of feeling understood and that someone gets me. Mm. Um, I'm not trying to, you know, teenagers and young people at the best of times can try and do the opposite of what you tell them at times. And, and what they don't expect is you're going to agree with them, especially an adult in what's perceived to be kind of an authority position going, yeah, no, I agree. You're completely right. Oh, and it kind of catches them off guard. <laughs> <laughs> Remove the battle. Mm. Yeah, and you go, look, yeah, you're right. It is what it is. And it's, it's crap for everybody. And I don't like it. And you're right. School is stressful. And you don't want to go to school. And I get it. But, and then I'd still probably launch into, we still got to do the best that we can. And look, mm. you might want to go to school, but keeping a routine is just going to keep us going. And, and you're doing the best and validate that they're, they're trying the best that they can and they can do more. Mm. Um, but the validation piece has to come first because if you launch into, like you said, go for your walk and do your Zoom call and you lose them. They're, they're gone before you even start. So mm. we need to take time to recognize how hard it is. And, you know, we've seen over the media over the last year that young people have been scapegoated at times, I think, unfairly. So sure. they, they come in almost with this barrier up that, you know, here's another adult going to tell me what to do and they don't get it. And if you really try and meet them some of that way, they go, oh, okay, I might be up to listening to this because this guy might actually be interested in what I have to say. It's like one of the young person said to me, you know, you don't have to be me. You just have to try and understand me. It was kind of seeing it from my point of view. That's brilliant. And I think that we do maybe underestimate the validating experience of just saying, you're right. You know, (laughs) but yeah, no, excellent. So the next question here is, can I put a question forward about my eight, almost nine-year-old daughter? She's her eldest of three in the house. is really regulating her emotions and her inability to do it. She cries very easily, can work herself up very quickly who doesn't like what she hears from me or my husband. We often are, have unwarranted outbursts and she breaks down, cries, rants and loses her temper. Sometimes she does this in front of her friends and I've never seen any of them behave this way. I'm assuming it's an emotional maturity issue, but I'm just not sure how best to tackle it. I've told her it's not appropriate response and she needs to calm down, take breaths, etc. She's a super kid besides that, a lovely sister and friend and very good to us all in general. So eight to nine-year-old Mark with uh, explosive emotional outbursts. Uh, yeah, I think kind of, uh, I like the last bit, you know, I think this is the bit really to, to focus on to start with, that she's a super kid and a good sister and, and good in general, and not to, not to lose sight of that, that sometimes we can almost over, overanalyze specific behaviors and, and maybe worry that it's something more than it actually is. And we know that maturity for kids cognitive or emotional is not a linear process it, it you know it's going to come up and down they'll go through spurts in the same way that they, they do with their growth but also certain reactions from young people are, are going to be valid so eight or nine year olds are not really supposed to like what a parent says and especially if it's around a boundary can i have this can i stay out late can i stay up late and watch tv or have that sweet no unfortunately you can't and you know that emotional reaction is is normal for an eight nine year old you know that that's there now, the difficulty, I suppose, and the worry I would have is that as it goes forward, the, the fact that she, she still is in front of her friends um, and eight, nine year olds will be tolerant for, for a while, but then they do become more judgmental. And, and that's, you know, something that you, you'd kind of worry about a little bit over time. But 
not not just yet because I mean just even that's it I'm telling you it's not an appropriate response is automatically kind of invalidating the emotion similar to what we were just talking about that you know I'd be much more quicker to come in with look I can see you're upset I know it's disappointing when mommy or daddy have to say no to you and that you don't like that and, and that's understandable you know I, I get it but you know this is not going to help change mommy and daddy's mind and that that you can you can have these emotions and it's okay but there always has to be a boundary between what's a justified and an unjustified response to whatever the the boundary setting is yeah and i think i agree with that and i think once it doesn't change what mommy and daddy says then that's really yeah. important that you that's the, the most important yeah. i've said that to parents quite mm-hmm. a lot is that i would argue sometimes that that not putting a boundary in at all is is arguably more damaging than putting one in and pulling it out Mm. You know, that, that if, if you take that position, you have to leave it there, that, that it has to be. And they are, look, kids are kids and the best of kids, the very best of kids will, they know which buttons to press. They, they know, you know, I'd have sometimes two parents in and a kid sitting in the middle between them. And I'd say, now, if you really want to, to watch this movie, you know, this week, who do you ask mommy or daddy? And they know, just like that. They, they know, and I can see the parents squirm going, uh-oh, because the parents know. They know themselves. <laughs> and, and, you know, and so there's a young person, and I love their honesty. They will say, well, it depends. If I want this, I go to mommy. If I want this, I go to daddy. And, and they're, you know, if they see a gap, they'll drive a truck through it. And, mm. and, that, and the best of kids will do that. And it, it doesn't mean that they're bold or anything else. They're just being kids. And, and the, the challenge for us as adults and as parents when we're wrecked and we're tired and we've come in from work late in the evening, trying to remain consistent is tough. It's really, really tough. And what I find really hard with this is that I'm sitting in work and I have these parents in front of me and I give all this advice about consistency and being calm and proportionate. And I, you know, this expert giving this advice like on this podcast and I go home and one of my kids pushes my buttons and I do the exact opposite of what I've just advised. And you feel like the world's biggest hypocrite because you know, you've just said, don't do this. It's not helpful. And then just by human nature, you go and we go, oh, God, I did it again, didn't I? So it's, it's not but it's even- human, isn't it? I mean, again, yeah. you're not going to feel the same way on a Saturday morning as you do on a Thursday night when you're wrecked. And so your yeah. reactions are going to be different. But I think the, the issue is maybe if you catch yourself and say, oh, Coleman, what are you doing? <laughs> or yeah. you know, get that right the next time. But I, I said this many times, parenting is aspirational. You know, it's something yeah. you're, it's a chasing a rainbow that we actually won't ever get to the bottom of. But we're, the fact that we're looking for it is probably a good idea, you know? We're, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing our best. And, you know, I think maybe with this particular young girl is to almost not pay too much attention to it. Um, because with any emotion or behavior with a young person, Sometimes the response that we give, we think is, and we hope is, is kind of helping and trying to, to change the behavior. But we also have to be cognizant of sometime the response could be the maintaining factor for it. So I'm just thinking she's uh, the third of three, maybe the two younger ones might take up maybe a little bit more time for mom and dad. They might have more needs and that maybe she might feel a little lost within the family and that, that this, you know, her displaying the emotions might be the way for her thinking that, you know, this is the only way mom and daddy spend time, you know, reassuring me, telling me to, to, to calm down, to take those deep breaths, that if when she isn't displaying these behaviours, if the parents were to spend, kind of notice that and, and spend time with her and reinforce when she wasn't reacting like this, that she might be more likely to do it. So I suppose we don't know the full story, but it's certainly something that I wondered about when I read that question. Yeah, 100%. And again, it's back to the kind of catch you being good as yeah. well as that, you know. Next question, Mark, is my son is, was two in October and due a baby in number two in January. We moved from Dublin to end the country during the summer to be near our family. 
He has settled well now, but bedtime routine went bad for a few weeks in the new house. We have to now move again, and it's in brackets the last time in a few weeks, and this is combined, combined with a new baby, which might be tough on him. The rest of his routine will be the same in terms of childminders, etc. He's advanced for his age and his words, so we tell him about the baby in Mammy's tum- tummy and will coming to live with us soon. But with the house move as well, I was just wondering about any techniques I should use to ensure he still feels safe and secure with things changing around him. Uh, so a kid who's going through a lot of change, new sibling on the way, two house moves. Yeah, hard to, hard to keep things settled in that one. My, my, two, my thing is to try and keep it as, as consistent as possible. And again, just in light of what we just said, ultra consistency and uniformity when life gets in the way is not always that possible. But what I would say is, and I'll let you come in on this one, Mark, but I think children can be amazingly reflexible when it comes to change. Uh, I've seen you know, kids who may have had 10 or 12 house moves throughout their lives and moving from countries and everything, and they seem to have this very brilliant bounce back ability. Of course, it does affect others more negatively. But, you know, the one thing that's consistent is change. We're changing all the time. But any tips there on managing things to keep it as, as settled as possible? Yeah, I definitely agree that was when when there are things in, in certain aspects of a young person's life that are that are changing and have to change, we have to see what things can we say the same. So the fact that his childminder is the same is is great. That's that's really really good because house moves are 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 difficult and especially for for a kid because it's their their secure base. It's predictability. This is where I you know where I grow up and where I feel safe and where I have my toys and I know where to go. Um, so that's that's going to take some time. The only thing I wonder about is about the talking to him so much. Because as adults, sometimes we can have a conversation with a little person and we think and assume that they understand and process language in the same way we do. So with a two-year-old, I would be much less likely to have a conversation with them, but more likely to use visual prompts. So things like pictures and books to explain it because they can see it because at that age of their cognitive development, they think in more concrete terms. They, They need to see it to understand it. And it's much more difficult for them to both understand the language, but also to remember it. Because their brain is, is, is so small, it's so growing and, and the different priorities. So for me, it's, it's about the, the doing, the predictability, being around them. So, so that, that's going to feed them. It's about the actions rather than the talking. So by, by spending time with them, by, by showing them kind of pictures to explain maybe what's going on, um, by involving them you know, in, in, in the house move, maybe showing them what the new house looks like, driving past. So they will remember things visually much more than they will verbally. And as far as you can, in a time of great change, keeping even the little things consistent would be really helpful. And that's a brilliant advice. You, you pick on a brilliant point there that I think sometimes, and probably due to our own anxiety, we can over-prepare children. Yeah. Uh, we, almost f- build, we build it up. We almost make yeah. them anxious by the fact that we built it up. And you're the, 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 the first day in primary, or primary school and you kind of have the uniform in May and you're trying it on <laughs> and we're doing dry runs. And it, it, it can actually, it can be overwhelming, the, the conversation that keeps going back to it. But I, lo- I love that idea of using the images and the pictures because it's much more retainable for them yeah. than the facts and the details. Um, and, it's, and it's at their stage of, of cognitive and emotional development. And it's, it's something where we can sit down like we would with stories. We sit down on the knee and we look through it and they go, oh, and, and they're more likely to remember it because those kind of books will be pitched at, at the level that they can understand and in, with pictures that are going to engage them. So I, in terms of having those kind of conversations with, it, with a two-year-old, if needed, but only, only if needed, rather than, than trying to get in and prevent that reaction and thinking that we need to prevent it and that if a young person has a negative reaction to, you know, new baby arriving or that, you know, a house move, that as parents, we failed, we've done something wrong. 
that, you know, if they get a little bit anxious, that's kind of what most people will feel about a you know, house move. It's a big thing. It's more just that if it lasts for a long time, but we, we don't want to get into a stage, I suppose, where we're, we're, we're wrapping kids up in bubble wrap in anticipation of what might happen and it never does because it just heightens their sense of anxiety. And also the thing that, that, that sibling rivalry is normal to a certain yes. degree, a lot of it's normative. And I can only speak from my own behalf. I, n- I remember when my third lad was born and <laughs> a few weeks later, my daughter came up and kind of, she didn't ask it in this way, but she was kind of asking me, did we keep the receipt? You know, we, <laughs> instead of, when is that going back? You know, we've had enough of it now. It cries a lot and makes a lot of noise. Um, I, think, I think the biggest <laughs> difficulty for me going from two to three was the fact that I've only got two arms. No, but it's like up daddy and then you've got two up and the third comes along going, give me a hug, pick me up. And you're like, um, yeah, this, this, knee is, there. this is not working. This is not computing. <laughs> the third one does change everything. A new car, the holidays yes. are changed. Think <laughs> about it. Well, I think especially when, when the logic of this it kind of continually escapes me is the fact that when they turn two, they're considered an adult when it comes to a flight. And you're looking yes. at a tiny little person wearing a nappy. That, that literally can't even blow their own nose and they were paying an adult fare for a two-year-old going, something's not right here. <laughs> Probably not the time to, to campaign to the airline trade at the moment. but maybe. Not, not, not right now, no. <laughs> Next question. I'm a mother of an eight-year-old and a six-year-old boy. I would like to ask your advice about a situation that repeats itself over and over again in my house and listen to my friends in their houses also. And my partner and I don't know how to handle it. My kids just all of a sudden become mega giddy and hyper, start running around, pushing each other, playing rough and escalating until one of them, usually the youngest, would get hurt. And it always ends up in tears. Telling them to stop or calm down has no effect whatsoever. And we try and separate them and they just run into each other again. We just can't figure it out. I know it's not a huge problem compared to other issues that you deal with, but it does cause stress in the house. And I'm afraid they'll hurt each other badly sooner or later. And yeah, this came up... um, one of the earlier episodes, uh, Karen Coster was on and she had spoken about the rough play and she mm. had a similar issue here. And what I'd kind of said at that occasion, Mark, was, you know, it's the spirit of the play. You know, if two lads are you know, going out and yeah. we say, we're going to rug- tackle each other and we're going to do it, then there's agreement. There's almost a consent. Uh, but then it gets into aggression and hostility. And then that's obviously when the, when the tears happen. But at six or eight, they probably don't have great self-regulation skills to be able to say... You know, I'm getting a little bit hot under the collar here. I'm going to take a step out. You know, they, they kind of will keep yeah, going. Yeah. But in terms of practical tips, uh, how do you manage the over boisterous horseplay six and eight year old? It, it's tough. Uh, I, I think the one thing that jumped out at me from this, this question is, you know, there's a genuine concern there from, from the parent in relation to that worry that they're going to get hurt. But I think what they also need to do is to pay attention to some of the things they've already said, is that from listening to their friends, it's also happening in their house and it's happening in my house and it happens in houses up and down the country. And not mine. Just now. Uh, yeah, but, but for, for years. So that we don't need to worry that this means that we're, again, we're doing anything wrong or not. We're, we're, we're not. But I think we also can't ignore the context of the fact that we've got COVID at the moment and that kids don't have as many sources of, of time and places to run off that energy, that they're cooped up, they're bored, they have it. And, and especially with boys, you see with them, they just want to run and run and burn it off and pull out of each other and hang out of each other. And with the, the, the little kids that I coach, the, the under sevens, the difference between them and the boys and the girls, it's, it's remarkable. I have nine-year-old girls and seven-year-old boys for coaching. And the girls will come along and they'll do handstands and cartwheels and you're like, what are you doing guys for training? But, but they don't pull out of each other as much. And then you get to the under seven boys and it's just 
we need double the amount of parents with the seven-year-old boys to try and just corral them. Um, and this is out in a big open field. They pull, they jump, they hang. And, and you're right, we have to sometimes be realistic about what we expect of them. That, as you said, they're not going to stop and go, actually, remember the last Saturday, Mammy and Daddy told me this went too far and someone could get hurt. That's a fair point. You know, I'm going to get up from you now when I'm having fun. You know, you know it's that, that ability, that reflective capacity doesn't come for, <laughs> and this is probably going to terrify some parents, it doesn't come for many, many years. Um, and, and that, About four decades, I believe. Well, some would argue I'm still struggling with it, so um, I won't go further on that. But, you know, it's, it is kind of that, that monitoring, you know, and stepping in. And unfortunately, with kids of that age, you know, where, where that, that parent had said that they just don't listen, repetition is key. You know, they're not going to, when they're, from their point of view, is, I'm having fun and I don't see that far ahead. You know, we saw with the marshmallow test is that they don't think that far ahead. If, if you offer me one marshmallow now, I'll take it. If you ask me to wait five minutes and I'll have two, I'll still take the one. And I'll, I'll want the other one as well. But, you know, their ability to delay gratification. If I'm pulling and jumping here and it's enjoying fun, well, this is what I want right now. I don't think five minutes away to projecting into the future of somebody gets hurt and then mommy gives out to me or daddy gives out to me and my brother's crying. And that's just too far ahead. They, 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 they want to have fun. So it is that, that repetition over and over. And it's exhausting. Trust me, I, I, I feel it myself saying the same thing and that's one thing I actually would say for maybe for, for people who are haven't maybe having another child or haven't had kids yet and they're thinking about the name make sure you really love that name because you are going to say it over and over <laughs> and over again it will become ingrained in your brain and and you're wondering you know at times with my kids I've, I've thought you know, maybe I'll just bring them to the audiologist for a hearing test you know because I'm not really sure because I've said it four times and you know, they just chose not to hear because they didn't want to. Three of mine have been to the audiologist. <laughs> they all have perfect hearing. They yeah, can hear right. a crisp packet open in three rooms, but they can't hear get your shoes. But uh, no, no, no it is, I think it is, it is challenging, but it's, it's, it's monitoring, doing your best. They are going to get bumps and bruises. There's going to be tears, it, it, especially with my first child. The first bump that they had was terror. And I was, because of working within the health, the health system, I was thinking social workers, I was thinking child protection notices, you know, if they fell and, and one of my, my daughter got a bump the size of a tennis ball and it was just you know, terror, guilt over if they got hurt, it was my fault. I should have stopped them from getting hurt. Um, and then you kind of gradually, like my third now would fall over and go, ah, she's grand. Get up there, you'll be fine. So your, your, your tolerance for it and, and seeing that, look, they are relatively robust, they do bounce back. But then being cognizant that, yes, there's times where you're going, no, that's too much. And, and, and you, you made two brilliant points, though, Mark. I mean, the COVID thing, the cooked upness yeah. is going to mean we're going to see more of it. And everyone is seeing more of it. And the second bit is, even though repetition doesn't feel like it's working, it's kind of a, a process of erosion. You don't see it's it. Slow burner. Yeah. It's a slow burner. Yeah. And to keep saying it, not, don't give up on it. Absolutely. But yeah, that, that, that reminds me that the kind of that tusla fear of you know oh my god and i i still have a and this is me coming clean here i i I'm still pe- petrified by cutting my children's nails you know, <laughs> when they're small because i nicked one of them when i was so oh my god i i it took me weeks to get over that the first time oh, no, i i i the same i <laughs> i i, I deferred and my excuses my, my wife works in a children's hospital and i just be well you work with small children i'll i'll defer to your superior knowledge but it was pure terror on my behalf because <laughs> 
if I got it wrong and I pinched it, oh no, I, I can't be dealing with that guilt. <laughs> so there's the two parenting experts <laughs> who are clearly yeah. coming through. <laughs> Next question, we're getting near the end here. My five-year-old daughter has been experiencing social anxiety, specifically selective mutism, since the beginning of preschool two years ago. She started primary school and is very happy there, but she's not speaking at all. She's very good at communicating non-verbally, and she's functioning fine when at school. And she has a couple of friends. Uh, my question is, what could we be doing at home to help ease her situation? We were on a waiting list for an appointment with speech and language therapist. Our GP thought it was the best route to help. And in the meantime, we'd love to be able to help her in any way we can. With current restrictions, play dates, and obviously socialising outside of school is not possible, unfortunately. She does have a three-year-old brother who she plays with. Many thanks in advance for any help or tips that you might have her, to help her along the way. Any thoughts on that one, Mark? Yeah, you know what, it's, it's five-year-old girls and selective mutism is, is actually more common than you would think. Delighted to hear that they, they went to get an appointment with, with a speech and language therapist. That's a fantastic idea because with kind of selective mutism, one of the things that you want to rule out first is that it isn't a difficulty with expressive language. Do they have the words or is it, is it an anxiety? They have it and because they're, they're, they're kind of struck by that anxiety. So with kind of that selective mutism, the young person becomes kind of frozen. And over time, the longer that comes on, they become fearful of the sound of their own voice. So there's, there's lots of things. I think, as I said, the SLT piece is great. So with what they can do at the moment is I'd really recommend that they would look up someone called Maggie Johnson. So she pioneered a technique called sliding in. And, and really what that is, is what you'd be quite familiar with Coleman, is kind of graded exposure. So it's, it's getting the young person to be a little bit anxious and, and to tolerate that anxiety. So what I've done before with, with young people with uh, selective mutism is use technology. So I've got them using maybe the iPad or, or a phone or something to, to create an audio note and to say, say a word, say two words, and to use that and to play it back so that, that they hear the, the, you know, their voice being played. Um, and that's worked really, really well because they can tolerate it. So in the beginning, and with one particular young person, that their, their dad would, would record on his iPad, they would bring it in, I would listen to it in the room without her there because it was too anxiety provoking for her to hear me hearing her voice. So when I would hear it first and then she would come in and use her non-verbals like this young girl, but you could see that I praised her for the fact that she did it and that it made her anxious and to name that anxiety. So it's trying to find the little opportunities that you can with low expectations that there will be um, lots of talking and if there's a word here two words here then then that's good i had a young person a teenager who who was had, had difficulties with anxiety who over the course of maybe two years said three words to me but we found other ways to communicate and that it is still communication um mm. but finding ways that that they can they can do it and see you know a word as a win a little win that's 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 a great word and, and that's okay and next week we'll try and add to it but maggie johnson and looking up those resources I think would be, would be really good in, in the interim. Fantastic. Love that. Uh, next one is, uh, I'm hoping to give you, for you to give me some advice on how I can support my nearly five-year-old son through a tough time. Back in January, I had a falling out with my parents. My son would have been very close to them. For various reasons, it, it doesn't look reconcilable. I've tried to explain to my son that we've had a difficult time, but beyond that, I don't know what to say. He's associating not seeing them with the coronavirus and says see frequently that he can't wait for the coronavirus to go away so he can see them. I've tried to correct him gently and there's nothing, that there's nothing to do with coronavirus, but he really seems to not want to believe this. I don't know if it's the best thing to let him continue to believe that. I worry about how he'll be when the pandemic end, ends and he still can't see them. 
I try to encourage him to talk about how he feels, but he doesn't say much. He just goes quiet a lot. I'd really appreciate your advice. That's tricky. Oh, it's, this is, this, is, this mm. is very, very, very tough. I think maybe just to pick up on the point at the end about I try to encourage him to talk about how he feels, but he doesn't say much. My, my instinct there is he doesn't know he's five and that his ability mm. to name feelings at five is not really developed yet. So he'll have a, a feeling inside him. He knows it doesn't feel right, but he more than likely won't be able to put words on it or to name it. And going quiet might be that he just doesn't know what's there. And I suppose the first thing when I read this question was that, look, the, the parent, for whatever reason, had a falling out. But does that mean that it, it has to be, you know, it, it's not reconcilable in terms of, the, the grandparents getting to see their, their grandson that we see it all the time with you know parents whose relationship has come to an end and and that it's not it's not possible to, to heal that relationship but you work out a way of, of, of access of, of kind of putting the the needs of the child first and that just because the, the parent and the grandparents relationship is ended I wouldn't have thought that it had to be an automatic that that they wouldn't but I think the bit that you know he he needs to believe that like that makes sense he's dealing with a lot and and he doesn't want to believe it because you know from his point of view he hasn't done anything wrong so why would they not want to see me it's covid that's the only thing because otherwise he has to sit back and go well what did i do wrong to granny and granddad so i think that's it's it's very tough Mm. and i think and again within reason if it was reconcilable that that they could still have a relationship with your son or your son could still have a relationship with their grandparents you know and mark you and i would have seen this over the years where there is very tense relationships between parents and when you're able to facilitate adult communication with each other you can facilitate a relationship with the child without necessarily having a good relationship with each other and and i think from the point of view of this lad i mean the long way the coronavirus continue from the point of view of buying time for this mum, but I think there is going to be a time where she will have to be either honest with him or try and maintain some sort of reconcilable relationship. But it's more down the line that you'd worry that this boy might get angry or annoyed if, you know, in many cases you kind of, I I don't know many children who come to therapy very angry that they were told too much, but I get a lot who get angry that they weren't told enough. And I know he's still very young. You have to be developmentally kind of appropriate in the information you give him. But if it was at all possible to facilitate a relationship between him and his grandparents, who he clearly had a good relationship with, I'd probably encourage that person to make every effort possible to do that. It's exactly what you've said, I think. Yeah, and I think I think now is almost the time to do it while there are restrictions and while he still believes that is to to make, you know, to reach out and to to acknowledge the grandparents, look, things are difficult between us at the moment, but my son is your grandson is is missing you, he's looking forward to seeing you again. Things are not good between us, but can we find a way to to do that? I mean, even if it was this as as simple as as a as a Zoom call or a WhatsApp video call where he just gets to chat to them and he doesn't have to doesn't have to be an interaction between the the parent and, and the grandparents. But as difficult as it is to do that, as you're right, we've seen this over the years with, with lots of parents who really struggle to put their stuff to one side. But I think just the conversation about initiating that contact just has to be this is what you know this is what he needs and 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 he needs to keep relationship with both. Um, and that otherwise you know I, I really would worry that that over time he would kind of blame himself or believe that he's done something wrong because kids at five think in very black and white terms. You don't want to see me because I'm, you know, I'm bold or you don't like me anymore. I've done something wrong. And that's, that's not something that a five-year-old needs to be sitting with. 
Great stuff. Uh, next one is my question regarding anxiety when we seek professional uh, when to seek professional help. And this is a question I think we probably both get this a lot in terms of at what point do you? We have three children, two boys, fifteen and nine, and twelve year old girl. Our youngest is bright and sporty, lovable, funny boy. In fourth class, gets on great. Over the last few years, he's complained on and off about tummy pains. Brought him to the doctor a few times. Nothing medically wrong. Participates well in class, but is uncomfortable with it. He's sensitive and he can't take much sibling teasing. Uh, first lockdown was great. He loved being at home, seemed to gain a lot of self-confidence. But things were great since, sep- not great since September, uh, or were great since September. No tummy pains, enjoying school, very happy. Until the Thursday before Halloween, teacher asked them to email in a picture of them in their costume instead of dressing up. He told me which picture he wanted to send in and was happy for me to do it. The night he got up during the night complaining of belly pain, we knew it was because of the picture. He decided to ask the teacher not to show the picture. Unfortunately, when the teacher was opening the pictures, it it flashed up as one of the pictures, even though that was an accidental thing. When he saw it, he fainted. Uh, The school rang home. I collected him. He was 100% fine. He just said the picture came up, his eyes went black, he fell, and he got a massive belly pain. He wasn't upset, he didn't feel embarrassed that he fainted, no after effects after all. He told his brother and sister matter-of-factly about it. Otherwise, he's brilliant form, happy at home, good, full of chats and jokes. Can you advise us on what to do? The worry is that the more common anxiety-related stomach pain is being replaced by physical reactions to what he perceives as worry or stress. And if we don't address it now, it could develop into a situation where, although it might not be frequent, if he gets stressed, he ends up fainting or something. On the other hand, if we bring him to a psychologist or therapist, would he feel that there's something wrong with him? And I really mean it when I say he's in great form. He's more confident, outgoing, and loving school and life in general. So this is a kind of an issue of that, again, that at what point do you... Uh, and there has been an event, but things seem to be settled now. Uh, any thoughts on that one, Mark? Yeah, I think the, the threshold for, for me and for us is always about how often this happens and how much of an impact on this was activities of daily living, as my, my OT colleagues um, use that, that phrase, it's great, about how much it interferes with daily life. So if, if it's occasional, if it's only in certain situations every now and again, then no, I, I wouldn't think that, that it's something that necessarily needs to speak to a psychologist about. What I have seen over the last while is around that age as well, about the age of nine, that I'm, I'm meeting a lot more parents and I'm, I'm helping them with understanding what's going on. I'm helping them with how they react to it. Because what, what I often see with this kind of situation is that the parents are anxious too. They're, they're anxious about the fact that their child is anxious. And, and they're worried about, you know, if I don't do something, what will this lead to? And then again, that, that piece of, you know, will I, will I feel guilty or will someone blame me the fact that I didn't get help earlier early enough? But I think it's really important there, you know, the fact that he's in good form, that his confidence is built, he's loving life. The piece around, you know, where they said about the, the physical reactions, anxiety of all the different emotions that we might struggle with is the one that's the most physical. So, you know, we're going to get the upset tummy, we're going to get the tense muscles, the racing thoughts, the shortness of breath, the hyperventilating, and that, that does have a physical reaction to it. So my, my gut instinct on this one would be that, that no, kind of keep, keep with the progress that he's been making. Um, it might be of, of benefit for the parents, I suppose, maybe to, to do some more research to, on, on, on anxiety. And I've, I did a, actually a, a webinar that I have on YouTube on, on parents and just trying to support them on how to manage the kid's anxiety because the other piece with i suppose with with us as therapists is that you know the young person might see us for 40 minutes 50 minutes once a week or every every two weeks and with the support that we provide so say with cbt there's the cognitive and the behavior part they can understand the logic of what we're saying but that i would argue 80 percent of the benefit you get is from the doing 
and, and we're not there on a Sunday night at, at maybe seven o'clock when they're getting anxious about school the next day or eight o'clock in the Monday morning when they're anxious going to school. But if parents are confident in their responses to the anxiety, that's going to give you know, much more confidence to the young person in managing it, I think more than coming to see someone like me. Absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think from the point of view that the, the somatic pain is usually a manifestation of the anxiety as a way of communicating, but it is real pain. They may actually yeah. feel their tummies that way. Where can you get that webinar or that could listeners get that, Mark? So that's my YouTube handle. I'm trying to think of it now. Psycho Spartan. I was a big fan of 300 at the movie at the time. So I just went, yeah, Psycho and Spartan. Why not throw that together? Um, but I'll, I'll put it into as a, as a, a response to one of the links to Twitter so people can access it too. Super, brilliant. There is another question here, similar to the one we got before, about discipline. My question is how to discipline young children. I have a four and two-year-old. I've heard your advice in previous episodes about catch them being nice, and it does make sense. But my question is how to react when they do something bad without turning into a complete nag. For example, my two children jump and climb on the couch all the time. It usually ends in tears with somebody falling off, no matter how much and how calmly I say no, it doesn't stop them doing it. Uh, again, five minutes later, I don't believe in naughty steps or punishing a child so so young, but I'm worried that if I ignore it now, what are they going to be like when they're older? Thanks and really enjoying the podcast. So the two and four-year-old is a difficult one. And I think what I have been saying is kind of uh, similar to what we said the last time, kind of disattend to it, you know, in some respects, not giving it, it fuel and then obviously catching them being good when they're managing. Again, we're seeing so many couch-related incidences during COVID. <laughs> I can't help but think there's a, an element to that. But one of the things, Mark, and I'd be interested to hear your, voice, your view on this, I'm not a fan of the, the, the muted, neutral parenting response where everything is in a soft voice and because I don't know whether the child picks up on your emotional upset. Now, obviously mm. within reason, but I think a child needs to see when they have upset you or when you're cross or when, you know, and I think it puts a lot of pressure on parents to be kind of calm all the time. Uh, and I think there's, there is an issue with parental guilt around, you know, that we have to be perfect all the time. And the magazine said, I should never raise my voice and I should never. But in real world, sometimes we have to, in, for a child to pick up on social nuances. What are your thoughts on that? Is that? Yeah, I think it's kind of one of the issues that I'm dealing with probably most often with parents over the last little while is, is trying to reassure them they're good enough to manage the self-doubt. And it's even coming through to me there, you know, I'm worried what are they going to be like when they're older? Nobody has a crystal ball. You know, you can't project a two-year-old who jumps off a couch when they get to 14 is going to be, you know, wrecking the place and, and causing mayhem. That, that, that's not what happens. So for a two and a four-year-old to jump on my couch has got plenty of jumping action over, over the last little while. But, but I would tend to agree with you. And I've, I've seen it with my, my three-year-old when just something, when a line gets crossed and, and, and the, the voice is raised just, just a little bit or the tone or even no, stop. And, you know, you'll see it, the lip quivers and you can see it just starting to go and then the head goes down and the tears come and the snots come. And it's, I, I don't like it, but I, but I also know that it's, it's necessary that they know there's a line and that there's, there's an authority. And, you know, I, I, I did a blog actually before about how, how parenting is in a democracy, that somebody has to be in charge and that kids, they don't need to like what you're saying or they don't, the kids are not going to like boundaries. You know, they're not going to come in and go, thank you, mommy and daddy for, for saying no to me on that. You're right. That was very dangerous for me. I'd be get worried, you know, if they do, I'm going to go, oh, there's something really wrong here. So if we say no to them, if we, if we put a boundary in place and they're, they're, they're sad and they're, they're annoyed by it, then, then that's okay because they remember the feeling. 
and they're, they're going to remember that feeling and they don't want to feel like that again. You know, when you can, as you said, you ignore when you can, there's sometimes you can't. And what I've done it with mine when they were toddlers is, you know, I've, I've said you need to stop and I've you know, raised my voice just a little bit, just be very clear on what it is that they need to do. I think what's really important with this age is that we name the behavior. And it's, you know, it's, I, I need you to stop jumping off the couch. It's not safe. I've had other situations with your parents where they're saying you're being bold. And, and that, that, that's a very difficult word because that, that more internalizes them as, I, well, I'm bold myself. So really, really, whatever the behavior is with this age in particular is to name it so that they know what that behavior is. But, but also I think what's really important with that age is, is the repair. So, you know, you let them have the cry and, it, and it's there. And then after a few minutes, what I've done with mine anyway is, will we have a hug? Yeah. And then mm-hmm. you have the big hug and now, now it's done. So mm-hmm. that, that it's, it's not left as kind of a, as a sore point that they're, they're, they're away from you is that there's a beginning and an end to it. And as we get older with kids, with, with teenagers or older kids, there has to be a beginning and an end to a consequence. And it has to be very clearly defined. And with a two-year-old or a three or four-year-old, that end is that, you know, that hug. So it's physically showing them, I still love you and you're a good person. I didn't like the behavior, but we're friends, aren't we? And, and that, that's what's going to keep them safe because they know that, that I, can, I can sometimes cross a line. I might feel a little bit sad, but mommy and daddy still love me. And that's what the most important thing is. I love that. And I think the other part of that, Mark, is, is the, the importance of time to a two-year-old. Like, it's not about, I'm going to leave them stew for a few hours. Like, that hope <laughs> no. could happen a minute after the thing. And it's yeah. fine because a minute is a long time to a two-year-old. Um, it's an eternity. And, <laughs> you know, I'm going to leave you in your room to think about it. And they come back and they go, why are you here? I have no idea. <laughs> they don't and the, and the, but the parent gets frustrated but I left you here to think about it and was that not last week <laughs> no, but they haven't a clue and, and we shouldn't expect them to like it's we, we, we think we're as adults and we think that they think like us mm. and you know are you going to sit down and reflect on your behaviour and then you're going to go back and you're going to acknowledge that, that you crossed that line and you hurt my feelings as an adult and you got to wonder sometimes with, with, as adults when we put these consequences in place and these boundaries Whose needs are we really meeting here? Is it ours or theirs? hundred <laughs> percent. Brilliant. Now, last question, Mark, and I know I'm, you'll have definitely have something to say on this one because this is a part of our, our specialty area. It's the question about screen time and teenagers. And I'm wondering if you could offer some advice on how to help teenager, teenagers self-regulate in regards to screens. Our eldest has, has little interest in anything other than screens despite the fact that in the beginning we tried the right thing with technology only allowing limited time, not buying devices or phones to their children, setting good examples ourselves regarding usage. Our son has gotten older. He's 16 now. He felt pressured into gradually easing the restrictions. And currently he allows one and a half hours a day of gaming and one and a half hours phone time. Uh, he's in transition year. At weekends, he's allowed double the gaming time. Personally, I think it's too much time. Uh, but we're trying to compromise and meet him halfway. He gets verbally abusive and nasty towards us when we try and enforce rules around screens. It's a sore subject in the house. It's difficult to figure out what's acceptable amount of time for teenagers. Recently, we've been trying to get our son to manage his screen time himself, but he continually goes over time. We're very conscious as he gets older that he does need to learn how to self-regulate regarding his screens. It occurs to me recently, however, that my son would be no good reason to self-regulate other than to please us to back, get us off his back. Therefore, there's no real incentive for teens to self-regulate. We worry that he devotes little time to anything else outside of screens, including schoolwork. 
He does have a small group of friends, thankfully. He's bright but lacks motivation and, and things he claims to be interested in. He was diagnosed with dyspraxia over a year ago. I recently came across a list of symptoms of ADHD, inattentive type, and practically all the symptoms fit for him. And over the years, a recurring comment of a parent-teacher meetings was that our son often appeared to be daydreaming. I do intend seeking some advice in relation to ADD. Uh, I just mentioned it here because I wonder if it might be a factor in his addiction to screens, and any advice would be welcome. Can we do an entire podcast just on this one question? Because <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we could easily. Yeah, it's uh, got similar to other ones. It's like, where, where, where do you start with this? I think the, the first time is the the concept of screen time itself is, in my view, completely redundant. It's it's, it's unhelpful because it's it's not about the screen time, but the content and, and what you're using it for. So like in, in primary school, they're all using big interactive whiteboards, which are screens. When they're watching TV, it's a screen. Um, so it, it depends what they're using. And I think to be fair as well to everybody in this situation, this is this has been a very difficult year to try and get people to regulate because, you know, we haven't been allowed to see people. We haven't allowed mix for teenagers. They're social animals. They want to hang out with each other. They want to talk. And, and we've had to. I mean, the WHO themselves had said, look, use technology to get you through this, to survive it. But it's hard when you when you give a teenager something to then try and, and try and pull it back. But I suppose even with the, the 1.5 hours of gaming, to me, it, it kind of depends on what the type of gaming is. So if it's a single player, they're sitting there just playing the game. I think that's very qualitatively different from they're playing with three friends playing FIFA with their headsets on and they're chatting. You know, in, in a different time, they could be out doing that together, spending that time. So it's it's different socially for them than it is for us, but it's it's still social. On the amount of time... That's very difficult. I know that there there used to be guide. Well, there still is guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics, but they're not based on any evidence base at all. They were kind of just made up at the moment. Ourselves in, in PSI, my professional body, and the British and the and the US, we're coming towards the end of some new guidance that we hope to publish early next year. That that will be actually realistic. In the meantime, the Royal College of Physicians in the UK have some excellent guidance that's really kind of practical but as was the one thing that I really wanted to, to jump in on this is two things one is that screen time get access to your phone gaming is a privilege you know and I think it's an enjoyable one for a lot of kids but it's not about the time they spend on it but what else they're doing outside of it so doing the homework eating the dinner you know playing football or going outside going for a walk that it's about getting that balance. And if that balance isn't there, then then we need to do it. But the, the main thing for me is the we're getting verbally abusive and nasty. So that that's the bit that the line where you have to go, no, no, hang on a second here. I'm not discussing time. I'm discussing the attitude. I'm discussing the fact that you're verbally abusive to me. So that behavior is the thing that needs to be named rather than how long he's been on it, because that respect, you know, has to be there. We have to enforce that that ruler and respect because that's teaching a life lesson for how we manage when people say no to us as we get adults yeah and i think absolutely it's it's, it's about his response to the limit mm. as opposed to the limit and um, yeah and mark we i would share absolutely everything you've said there i, I mean one of the interesting things i've often noticed mark that you you would have a, a more compassionate view to the gaming thing than i would and i just was never a gamer myself you know i think i had a an Atari or something, <laughs> but it didn't really do it, or a Commodore 64, but it, I never got into that. But there, the gaming, 
is there good and bad games? Like, I, I, I like the, the idea of the FIFA headsets and the social piece. Mm. And, you know, and I, I see in my family there's roadblocks and there's, they're chatting to people up the road. And there is, in lockdown, it's been a bit of a, a lifesaver, to be honest, yeah. in terms of maintaining some level of connection. But the, when you say that the, the kind of solo games, is that where there's... Obviously, there, there's lots of talk. We don't want to get into the, the is there violence and all that sort of stuff. Mm. It's a different conversation altogether. But are there good and bad games? Is that I, I'm not entirely sure. It's just a, it's a space I don't know an awful lot about. Yeah, look again, it's a, it's a big question. I think developmentally, you you have to be looking at what the ratings are on it. Like even say on the iPad, my my kids would come up with the iPad and say, "Daddy, can I have this?" And the first thing I'll do is I'll check and see what's the rating on it. So he's seven. And it, you know, depends on the content. Go, no, it's not appropriate for your age. That's for 12-year-olds. You can't have that. And they're disappointed, but mm. he knows that's the boundary and I will not deviate from it. So again, with say like GTA or Call of Duty, where there is quite a lot of violence in it, like with a video, like with a movie, there's a 18 cert and it'll say 18s. So that's the clue in itself. So, you know, I've had parents who've queued at midnight to buy the first release of, of Call of Duty so that they can give it to their son at 1 a.m., and then they come back to me worried that their kid is addicted to it and that he's getting aggressive. It's like, but you gave it to him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think the piece around the single player versus the two player or the, the multiplayer is that seeing that compassion piece of that, it is, it is mixing, it is socializing. Mm-hmm. Whereas that kind of sitting in the room on your own, playing a single player where you're not talking to your friends, you're not interacting. It's just hours after hours of the same gameplay. I think that's qualitatively quite different mm-hmm. um, because, you know, they're cooperating, they're chatting, they're sharing stories it, you know, it's different from having a chat when you're out kicking a ball out in the green with four or five of you, but they can't do that right now. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that it, it's, it's socially, it is still being social just through that online format. And interestingly, and, actually, one, I would say one of the things that, that parents, I think, have really struggled with, with that is that sometimes the language that they hear. And, and they'll say, you know, I came into the room and he was in there playing the Xbox with the lads and the, the language out of him, you wouldn't believe it. So I went, well, no, I would. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've worked for kids for a long time. Believe me, I, I would believe it. And it's, it, it's tough because, you know, if that, that teenager was out on the green or out in the road talking with the friends and that language being happening, we wouldn't be hearing it. You know, and, and it doesn't mean, you know, it's a difficult one because it's about morals and what we believe is values and acceptable or not. But when they're inside and they're having this conversation with their friends that they would outside and they are being overheard, the parents are really tough because do I intervene? Do I not? I don't like that language. Um, so it's, it's always a, a tough thing. And from the teenager's point of view, it's, but mommy, I have my headset on. My friends are saying it too. It's like, oh, well, I don't care what your, I don't care what your friends say. In my house, you will not use that language. And, and I, I've kind of, I've mixed views on it. I've kind of, the, generally the, the advice I'd be given is look, yeah, you may not like it. Try and keep it down. Or if there's younger siblings, that look, they don't mm. need to be. They don't need to be hearing that language. That, that that that's that's kind of a line for me where I go, oh look, and and to say, look, I know you're chatting to the friends, I know you use that language, but you know your six year old brother doesn't need to hear that. That's not okay for him to hear. So, you know, close, close. I guess we all use language outside of our ear in our parents' earshot yeah. growing up, which was different to the one we would use in their earshot. But what I would say, that, and I, I just in the interest of time, we have to close this one up. But I think the. The COVID is probably not the best time to start going heavy on tech restriction. I, I think, um, you know, for years we've told kids, come off your screens and go outside. And for the last yeah. 10 months, we've said, come inside and go on your screens. And I think the hypocrisy of the adult in the room is not lost on teenagers at the moment, you know, in, in that. But it, it has become a survival skill for them in terms of in the, in the moment. And I think 
what we hopefully have seen out of COVID is us using the technology a bit more on our own terms. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In terms of choosing how we want to use it as opposed to it using Having us. To. Mm. And, I, and I would agree about that, that COVID piece, but I would also think that it would be important to flag with young people that, look, at the moment, I understand this is how you're connecting with your friends and you can't go see them and everything. But as the restrictions start to ease, when we start to come out of COVID, we're going to start to need to pair in that back a little bit. For sure. So flag, flag it with them in advance that we don't do a, you know, ripping the plaster off because mm. for, you know, and even kind of with time limits, you know, given that, look, 20 minutes, you need to be off, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, when they come off it, I think the other thing is parents and adults that we need to remember is we don't need them to like it. We just need them to comply. So if they come off and they're resentful and angry and huffy and stamping their feet, fair enough, they're disappointed. They didn't want to end it, but they, they complied with it. That's, that's really, really important. And that, you know, I would say, and I've talked about technology with this before, that look, if they override it tonight, so if you've given them 1.5 hours tonight and they go to two hours, then tomorrow it's an hour. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you lose it the next night. There has to be a natural consequence mm-hmm. that, well, look, if you'd come off it last night, you would have had it. And, and there you go. Whereas what some of these parents will do is that the time is up, they go over it and they come in and they take out the Wi-Fi. They get an explosive reaction and then it becomes about the reaction. So it's, it's kind of letting them know they're not going to like it and then following through when it, when it does happen. Super. Mark Smith, I have thoroughly enjoyed that so much. Um, as always, it's always a pleasure to listen to your sense and sensibility. And it's the practicality of your approach that I love. Do you know what I mean? It's not, none of this stuff is hard to implement in terms of, it's not, there's, you're not asking us to go out and buy things and do things and put up charts and do things really complicated. Mm. You're just saying, you know, we're just trying to be consistent and predictable and safe. But look, that's... That's simple, but it's not easy. Uh, no, and, and you're right. It's, it's to, be, to, to be compassionate with ourselves and that we're doing the best we can. And you know, I've said before that you know, kids didn't come with manuals when they were born. And even if they did, they'd look at it and do, I'll do the opposite. So <laughs> you know, it's, parenting isn't easy, but you know, you're doing your best and, and, and to try and doubt yourself less when you can. Because and especially if you've got them to 7, 8, 9 or 14, you've done a great job getting them that far. And remember that, maybe just as a, as a parting note, that when when they're babies and, and especially as a first time parent, it was terrifying, but that when they cry, you, you don't know what's going on. Are they hungry? Have they got wind? Have they got a poo? Are they colicky? What, what is it? And, and you guess, you do your best to guess what they need. And if it doesn't that you move to the next thing and, and they can't communicate with you, but you still support them. And, and that's very, very difficult. So when, when they get a little bit older, don't second guess yourself. Your instincts are usually right. It's the right thing. And that, that, you will do your best and it won't always be perfect, but it's good enough. And if you're still guessing, you're still trying, which is the other thing. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah, it's a a brilliant point. (laughs) Mark, absolute pleasure. And listen, thank you so much for giving your time to the Asking for a Parent podcast. For anyone out there who wants to get in touch with us, you can get through to us on the askingforaparent at gmail.com or through Instagram and Twitter, and we will get to your questions in the next week. But for now, Mark Smith, mind yourself. Thank you so much and all the best. Thanks, Colin.